0: The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org.
1: Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhasa Namo Thasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namo Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Budang Damang Sangang Namassami. So tonight I thought I would share some reflections about one of the suttas in the middle-length discourses, the Majjhima Nikaya. In particular, the sutta called the Watu Pama Sutta. It's number seven, the simile of the cloth. So when I study a sutta, I try to keep three questions in mind First of all, what is the essence of this teaching? And then what practice can I derive from it? Or what practice is presented here? How can I bring this into my life? And more recently, I've started to bring in another reflection, which is how can what's being taught here be used to help our world, given that we are in unprecedented times with major challenges around the world, whether we everywhere we look, whether we look at climate change or the issues with pollution, the degradation of our natural environment, or our social and political systems, our economic system breaking down, whatever we choose to look at, we can see that there are major changes needed in order for us to just sustain um, our civilization and our and our life as we know it. So many things are changing and i think it's valuable to think in terms of what the buddha taught and how that can be carried into sort of the new the new order if you will the way we need to live our lives in order to be sustainable and happy so this sutta is set in Sawati, in Jaita's Grove in Anatapindika's Park. And the Buddha addresses the monks with a simile. He says, Bhikkhus, suppose a cloth were defiled and stained and a dyer dipped it in some dye or other, whether blue or yellow or red or crimson, It would look poorly dyed and impure in color. Why is that? Because of the impurity of the cloth. So too, when the mind is defiled, an unhappy destination may be expected. So an unhappy destination in this case, according to the footnote and and in, in terms of the teachings of the Dhamma is an unhappy rebirth in one of the lower realms. But of course, even when we look at our daily life, when we're dealing with the stain of the mind, something defiling the mind, we can also see how our actions and you know, even our demeanor brings about less than desirable results. Bhikkhu, suppose a cloth were pure and bright, and a dyer dipped it in some dye or other, whether blue or yellow or red or crimson. It would look well-dyed and pure in color. Why is that? Because of the purity of the cloth. So, too, when the mind is undefiled, a happy destination may be expected. So one of the things to consider around defilements of the mind or stains of the mind is that they aren't inherent or natural to us. Just kind of like the cloth, a pure cloth. The stain comes sometimes by accident. We're told in another sutta of the Buddha that the mind is luminous and the defilements come in from the outside. So one of the translators of this sutta Venerable Jnana Ponika, calls the defilements adventitious, which means they are acquired by accident or added by chance. So this makes it possible to practice to to wash them away or to clean them to remove them this is what makes it possible to become awake and enlightened so let's look at what these defilements are the buddha lists 16 here and there is another sutta the next one actually number eight which is called effacement which means kind of an erasing of the defilements where there are 44 listed. So if we don't find the ones that are particularly bothering us in this list, we might find them in the next sutta. But for this one, if we look at the ones that are listed here, I'm going to give a little bit more explanation of them based on Venerable Bhikkhu Bodhi's descriptions of these Pali words. The first one is actually is actually two lumped together. It's translated as covetousness and unrighteous greed. Havija visma loba. Havija is a kind of greed for something that's okay to have, but when one acquires it, one becomes excessively attached to it. You know, kind of like your iPhone. Or, I mean, you probably don't know anyone who has that kind of problem, but just the thought. And then the unrighteous greed is desiring something that really isn't appropriate for us to have, and, and even scheming to get it. Inappropriate as in maybe it's illegal or it belongs to someone else. The second one that the Buddha lists is ill will. The third one is anger. The Pali word is coda, and it actually has quite a few facets. It's uh, anger, hatred, irritation, opposition, resistance, displeasure of the mind, irascibility. Now for me, the value in understanding what these mean is that it It helps to be able to look at a range of the... It's kind of like the stains, you know. If I want to get a stain out, it's good if I know if it's a grass stain or if it's a um, tomato juice stain or whatever, you know. (laughs) That might be useful information. This, in looking at our defilements, in looking at what it is that makes us unhappy... It's, it makes it easier to remove them. The next one is translated as resentment, upanaha, hostility. Uh, Venerable Bhikkhu Bodhi says hostility might be a better word. And in Vibhanga, in the Abhidhamma, and in the commentary, they both talk about how this comes from like a past anger, or an anger that's been repeated again and again and envelops the mind. The next one is contempt, and the root meaning of this word, which is "maka," is a kind of. Uh, it means to smear, so it's it's like denigration, especially the denigration of someone who has previously done you a great favor or or has been a benefactor. And then later the person looks back and says, oh, what did they do for me? I did it all myself. And I've noticed that sometimes when someone's very generous to someone, they, they may actually have some resentment later. The, the person, the receiver, it's something to watch out for. Insolence, palasa, this is a presumption coming up, putting oneself at the same level as others who are, are more qualified. So somebody who has a little bit of understanding about a topic, holding themselves to be equal with someone who's very learned in that area. Envy. Avarice, but this word macharia in poly might be more like clinging or holding on to what one has and an unwillingness to share with others. Deceit, which is more specifically concealment, trying to conceal one's own faults or wrongdoing, hoping others won't find out. Fraud, and this particular flavor of fraud uh, in the commentary, they use this very kind of graphic simile. It's like a long fish that shows its tail to fish and its head to snakes. So they will think, I am just like you. And in the in the human realm, it's acting like you align with someone or you're... Uh, Companion and uh, and loyal to them when you're really not. Obstinacy and this also has the dimension of stiffness, hardness, unyieldingness, rigidity. Compared to like a bellows full of air or a ball that's filled with air with no no softness or flexibility. And then rivalry. Just someone who wants to be twice as good as anyone else. Uh, Twice as beautiful, twice as rich. Or this also has a positive aspect where someone sees someone else being generous and then they want to give even more out of the goodness of their heart. Or wanting to learn even more out of the love of learning. Obviously, that part's not a defilement, but the unwholesome side is, is, a, is a barrier. Conceit, I'm better than others, which it can also take uh, the form of I'm just as good as or I'm not as good as. That comparison of self to others. Arrogance, when conceit becomes extreme, and becomes haughty, dismissive, and dismissive of others. Vanity. So this word is madha, and it's translated as vanity, but the root of it, Venerable Bhikkhu Bodhi says, means intoxication. So this is the kind of intoxication that we might have on account of having social class, or education, or wealth, Or it could be an intoxication with youth if we're young. We just don't think about being old. We're kind of not really serious, not really um, grounded. I used to feel this quite a bit, I think. It's, It's like being kind of lightheaded about there's just so much wealth or ease or something that not really somehow not really being fully connected to what's deep and important and thoughtful so it could be intoxication with health or intoxication with life and then the next word is has the same root pamada And it's an intensification of intoxication that allows the mind to be overrun by defilements. It's translated as negligence. It's it's at the point where you make no effort to restrain the mind or train the mind. So that's what the Buddha lists here. And then he says, knowing that Covetousness and unrighteous greed is an imperfection that defiles the mind, a bhikkhu abandons it. And and the the text here has ellipses, it doesn't go through every one, but that's the same form for everyone. Knowing that ill will is a is defiles the mind, a bhikkhu abandons it. So I don't know if you've ever had the experience of realizing that something's not good and then just dropping it. I have a couple of times, but it's not usually that easy, or it often isn't that easy. And so what we're told about this passage is that we need to also see all the aspects of the path that help us to abandon some some defilement. So in terms of that idea of, well, what's the practice that comes out of the sutta? First of all, an honest investigation of our own tendencies and habits. And that honesty is so valuable. And also a real commitment to looking. And as long one you know like a very very good indication is being unhappy or not being at ease then we can look at what what's really there and it's always so easy to blame the external circumstances but if we really look well what is it that creates maybe something in this list in my own mind then we can start to look at well okay now what do i do now now that i see it just seeing it and acknowledging it has a power and then making an intention to begin to drop that begin to replace it so if we bring in sort of the full force of the practice what we can do is apply an effort for each occasion that we see this defilement arise and in that effort we can uh, replace that factor with a positive so if it's anger we can replace it with non-anger now that may sound like well how does that work it's a matter of turning the attention. What is what, it, what would it be like to have non-anger here? Of course, with <laughs> anger, there are lots of things we need to do. First thing, with anger, for example, is to recognize that it isn't beneficial. And sometimes we're encouraged to think of anger as beneficial. So that's the first step. But then to really reflect on, okay, I've got these feelings of anger. What is it like to bring in non-anger as a way to remedy this? And what is non-anger like? And then, of course, we also get great benefit from practicing meditation and developing concentration to calm us and help to focus the mind. And then we can have the space to work with the defilements. And in that space, investigating, investigating what our mental experience is, what our feeling experience is, with insight. And the wisdom that arises from that causes, eventually, causes those defilements to be cut off completely, but in the meantime, partially eroded over time. So he says, when a bhikkhu knows that covetousness and unrighteous greed is an imperfection that defiles the mind and has abandoned it, when a bhikkhu knows that, has known, has known, That ill will is an imperfection that defiles the mind and has abandoned it, and so forth. Then he requires perfect confidence in the Buddha. Thus, this is going to sound familiar because we chanted it earlier. The blessed one is accomplished, fully enlightened, perfect in true knowledge and conduct, sublime, knower of the worlds, incomparable leader of persons to be tamed, teacher of gods and humans, enlightened, blessed. And then the same thing happens in the next two paragraphs, talking about the Dhamma and the Sangha. So this confidence is something that can come through insight, but I think it also can come through the investigation does, and as we reflect on these qualities, how do we see them? Does that come through as authentic to us? And when the defilements are weakened, then we start to have a more clarity around the nature of the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. Then the Buddha says, when one has given up, expelled, released, abandoned, and relinquished these imperfections of the mind in part, so as we gradually release them, we recognize this perfect confidence in the Buddha, and from that gain inspiration in meaning, Gain inspiration in the Dhamma. Gain gladness connected with the Dhamma. And when one is glad, rapture is born in him. In one who is rapturous, the body becomes tranquil. One whose body is tranquil feels pleasure. In one who feels pleasure, the mind becomes concentrated. But this passage is kind of challenging and when Venerable Bhikkhu Bodhi taught about this he said that there's, there's two words here ataveda, Veda and Atta in Pali Atta is what's translated as gains inspiration in the meaning he says this is a really rich word and on the one hand it means meaning but it also means goal, purpose, and he said the goal of the Buddha's path reflects back on our life and gives meaning and purpose to our life. This reminds me of something that happened for me early in my in my pursuit uh, on the spiritual path. I was at a lecture of really one of my first spiritual teachers. And she was talking to a large group of people. And she said, so what is the purpose of your life? And it was something that I was really grappling with. Like, why am I here? What am I supposed to do? What's the gift I'm supposed to give? That kind of thing. And... She kind of had us hanging there for a minute and then she said there's only one purpose. There's one purpose to human life. And it's to be it's to awaken. So that's what this is saying. The goal of the practice, the goal of the path is that full liberation and awakening, that freedom from suffering, that freedom from these stains in the mind. And Bhikkhu Bodhi said, as one reflects on one's abandoning of the defilements and one's confidence in the Buddha, then this inspiration comes. It, and this inspiration, this, this, Inspiration of the goal, he it says it's something which is permeating and pervading our life right now with its own brilliance, with its own luminosity. And then the second word, Veda, is also rich in meaning. And on the one hand, it is to know, and on the other hand, suggests to feel. So he said it's a feeling imbued with knowledge, Or knowledge permeated and pervaded by feeling. It's a joyous inspiration that comes through knowledge and feeling that arises by penetrating the Buddha's teachings. So it's like so many things. The the deeper we go into the teachings and we gain more and more understanding and more and more insight, it fuels and inspires and encourages us encourages us so it's it's like an upward spiral carrying us further this aspect of joy is made more explicit by the next phrase where it, where it's translated one gains gladness connected to the dhamma He said, this is a great gladness or joy that comes from reaching the final goal for human existence for all of time. And when I first heard him say that, I thought, wow, that is pretty profound. And we must never think that that awakening is far away, that reaching that goal of human existence for all of time, it's right here. That's what the teachers say. tell us. It's right here. This is the starting point for a process that develops this gladness. As it intensifies, it becomes rapture or impali piti, A joy so strong, so concentrated that it floods the whole body, the whole mind, uplifting them, permeating them, just as a water floods the whole countryside. It has an exciting, exhilarating quality. It is wonderful compared to our insipid flat states of mind. But from the perspective of wisdom, the higher perspective, this state is defective. So we must cultivate it, bring it to a peak of development, and then detach from it and let it settle down until it is replaced by tranquility. Rapture gives rise to tranquility, first in the mind and then in the body. As the body becomes tranquil, then pleasure or happiness becomes prominent. Pleasure or happiness is different from rapture. It is quieter, calmer, just the feeling of sheer pleasure and happiness. This happiness pervades. The mind becomes concentrated. This is samadhi. So he's describing really what we see as the jhanas, the the description of the jhanas and moving through at least the first two. So then the sutta continues, the Buddha continues by saying the same thing when a person considers thus, I'm possessed of perfect confidence in the Dhamma and the same process and the perfect confidence in the Sangha. And then also reflecting on the lessening or release or eradication of the imperfections of the mind So I I think that this is a very important teaching that we really call to mind the positive changes that have occurred for us, that we really reflect on those and remember them, and that helps us Then the Buddha talks about this, if a if a person of such virtue, of such a state of concentration, and of such wisdom, and he's particularly talking about a monk here, eats alms food consisting of choice hill rice along with various sauces and curries, even that will be of no obstacle to him. So we're not going to get distracted. If we've got this kind of understanding and joy. We won't be distracted by, we might say, the lesser pleasures. Just as a cloth that is defiled and stained becomes pure and bright with the help of clear water, or just as gold becomes pure and bright with the help of a furnace, so too, if a bhikkhu of such virtue... Such a state of concentration and such wisdom eats really wonderful, delicious food. It won't be an obstacle to him. He abides pervading one quarter with a mind imbued with loving kindness. Likewise the second, likewise the third, likewise the fourth. So above, below, around, and everywhere, and to all as to himself. He abides pervading the all-encompassing world with a mind imbued with loving-kindness, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill-will. How many of you are familiar with this part of the, the text? Have you ever heard that before? Yeah? Everybody? No? So this is a description of The first of what is called the Brahma Viharas, there are four of divine abidings, loving kindness. And then the next one is compassion. Then appreciative joy, which is a joy for the well-being and the, the good fortune of others. And the fourth one is equanimity. Now these four... Are wonderful in many ways. One of the things that's wonderful about them, from my perspective, is that they can be applied. One of them is always applicable, whatever situation we're in. So, loving kindness is applicable when people are happy, well, when people are suffering. We bring compassion to that. When people are are doing well, doing wholesome, positive things, and gaining in the practice or gaining in, in positive ways, then we have appreciative joy. If people are behaving in unwholesome ways, we have equanimity. But in any case, there's a way to abide in such a divine state of peace no matter what so it's helpful to recognize when we're not abiding in such a divine state of peace that we could we can decide to if we see how to apply it and i like that it's it's put here so often we see the practice of loving kindness or metta or these others it's kind of a separate thing. But here it's embedded in a sequence of development. And in this case, the monk, the practitioner, uses this, these divine abidings as a way to move towards awakening. So in this case, that resting in... Loving kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, or equanimity can be used as a way to focus the mind and develop concentration. And then apply insight. So the next paragraph, or it's actually one sentence, and it's packed with meaning says, he understands thus, there is this, there is the inferior, there is the superior, and beyond there is an escape from this whole field of perception. So, in Venerable Bhikkhu Bodhi's teachings, he said the commentary is really helpful here because it describes what this means. There is this, when the monk is abiding in a state of peacefulness in one of these divine abodes and then comes out of that state comes to concentration and then comes out of that concentration and reflects with wisdom investigates what was present there and what was present there was the five aggregates. What, what we think makes up who we are. The body was there. Feeling was there. Perception. Mental activity or mental formations. And sense consciousness. In the reflection, we're told, there's a realization that these are impermanent. They're compounded, they're temporary, so attaching to them results in suffering. And they're not self. So taking those three characteristics and recognizing the nature of that. So that's what's meant by there is this. And that investigation is really revealing the first and second noble truth. The first noble truth, there is suffering. That suffering comes from being attached to something impermanent. So these Brahma Viharas, these states of great peace and bliss and the concentration, that's an impermanent state. So we see the first noble truth and the second noble truth of attachment to such things as being the root of suffering. That's the inferior And then they say the superior comes with the third and fourth noble truth. Then we have the cessation of that suffering by letting go. And the path that leads to the escape through the noble eightfold path. So what we're seeing in this sutta is all the different pieces that help us awaken. When he knows and sees thus, his mind is liberated from the taint of sensual desire, from the taint of being, and from the taint of ignorance. And when it's liberated, there comes the knowledge it is liberated. He understands birth is destroyed. The holy life has been lived. What had to be done has been done. There is no more coming to any state of being. This bhikkhu is called one bathed, with the inner bathing. Now he said this because there was someone present, a Brahmin who did this practice of bathing in the river and and had the belief that the bathing would wash away the defilements. It's kind of um, perfect that he used this simile of the stained cloth and... This person got very, you know, he kind of perked up, woke up there, and he said, does the Master Gotama go to the Bahuka River to bathe? And the Buddha says, why, Brahman, go to the Bahuka River? What can the Bahuka River do? Well, Master Gotama, the Bahuka River is held by many to give liberation. It's held by many to give merit, and many wash away their evil actions in the Bahuka River. And then the Blessed One addressed the Brahman, whose name was Sundarika Bharadvaja, in stanzas. Bahuka and Adika Gaya and Sundarika too. These are names of rivers. Payaga and Sarasati, and the stream Bahumati. A fool may there forever bathe, yet will not purify dark deeds. What can the Sundarika bring to pass? What the Payaga? What the Bahuka? They cannot purify an evil doer, a man who has done cruel and brutal deeds. One pure in heart has evermore the feast of spring, the holy day. One fair in act, one pure in heart, brings his virtue to perfection. It's here, Brahman, that you should bathe. To make yourself a refuge for all beings. So, from my perspective, that's the most beautiful way I could think of helping our world, being a refuge for all beings. And it comes through the practice that he's describing to purify the mind bit by bit through our effort, through our intention, through our commitment. He says, if you speak no falsehood nor work harm for living beings nor take what is offered not with faith and free from avarice what need for you to go to Gaia for any well will be your Gaia. And then we see the standard response. When this was said, the Brahman Sundarika Bharadvaja said, Magnificent, Master Gotama, magnificent, Master Gotama. Master Gotama has made the Dhamma clear in many ways, as though he were turning upright what had been overthrown, revealing what was hidden, showing the way to one who was lost, or holding up a lamp in the dark for those with eyesight to see forms. I go to Master Gotama for refuge, and to the Dhamma, and to the Sangha of Bhikkhus. I would receive the going forth under Master Gotama. I would receive the full admission. And the Brahman Sundarika Bharadvaja received the going forth under the Blessed One, and he received the full admission. And soon, not longer after his full admission, dwelling alone, withdrawn, diligent, hardened, and resolute, the Venerable Bharadvaja, by realizing for himself with direct knowledge, here and now entered upon and abided in the supreme goal of the holy life, for the sake of which clansmen rightly go forth from the home life into homelessness. He directly knew, birth is destroyed, the holy life has been lived, what had to be done has been done, there is no more coming to any state of being. And the venerable Bharadvaja became one of the arahants. Do you have any questions? It is packed. (laughs) It is packed.
2: Excellent talk.
1: Hmm. What will your first step be based on this? Hi, Um, it's just the notion of being aware of something like anger or understanding that this is what you're one of the defilements and being aware of that once you're aware of it then you can do something about it instead of just going off in a rage. Gil said something like murderous rage. You could be sitting in meditation with murderous rage, but if you realize you're in the rage, then you can do something to negate that rage. So mm-hmm.
0: I'm going to try that. Yeah.
3: I guess some of what you talked about made me think of that um, anger and... Um, There's an anger, I think, that can be like what you elaborated on the sort of separation and irritation and hostility. And then I think, in my experience, there can be anger that is, um, I don't want to say righteous, but I want to say um, if it can be held or or known. and not drive your your actions. In my experience, it's been able to sort of change my actions to bring more compassion or bring um, energy for what is an appropriate response to maybe ill treatment or something that may may be genuinely uh, harmful
1: in the world. So, may I ask you a question about this? Yes. That? Okay. So when you use anger for this kind of positive result, how do you do that? Is it still anger? How do you ensure that this is moving in a positive direction?
3: I mean, I would say actually by um, being really mindful of how unskillful it is, actually, Of seeing the mind go to um, want to respond in some way based on that hotness or that Mm -hmm. um, intense feeling Mm -hmm. that could only be called anger. Um, And then to, um, yeah, I guess I can only say just to let it be known and then, um, I guess, simultaneously. Practice with, um, you know, if you're seeing that person, for example, not being wrapped up in the story, but just seeing or knowing the thoughts, knowing the mm-hmm. sensations, mm-hmm. allows for there to be what could be called anger. It might be based off of a situation that has some injustice or some suffering. But um, by knowing the thoughts, the sensations, and not being wrapped up in that story, I think. I guess I'm trying to say that there can be that situation, and, but there can also be a um, compassion or a, a sense of mm-hmm.
1: yeah. skillful engagement. Mm-hmm. So I, I, what I'm hearing, and I'm relating it to an experience I had once, once that it really came out vividly, is that what, what I think you're talking about is being mindful with this emotional experience of anger that brings up a lot of energy and in that mindfulness because because of the mindfulness it's it's like you can watch this happening you feel it you watch it but you're not in it and you're not driven by it i think that's what i heard you say it's not pushing your actions And you can make decisions about what you do with that energy. And you can get a lot of positive work done. (laughs) Uh, It's good to have some work available, some real good physical work available. I think that's true. And there's always some injustice we can find. I personally don't think it's helpful to try to whip up the anger. I think it's more helpful to try to establish a solid grounding in peacefulness, a solid grounding in the values that one holds, a clarity about what is unjust, and a clarity about the need for love and bringing love to every situation. Then when anger arises and we use that skill of mindfulness and meditation, we can make use of the energy, but it never comes out as hostility. It never comes out as ill will. Is that?
3: Yeah, beautiful, thank you.
1: Yeah.
0: The words that um, came to mind when you were talking about that positive energy would be like determination or resolve to to act in a way to act but as you said with the kindness um one of the things that really struck me was um uh this one purpose being to awaken and um kind of hit me a little bit like a ton of bricks (laughs) Well, that's good (laughs) (laughs) um (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <That's right. laughs> or with the idea that <clears throat> without really attaching to doing a particular thing, mm. that as uh, events or things present themselves to you in your everyday life, that you can act in a very skillful way and make a contribution at every turn. I mean, that just seems... Um, I guess I've been searching for that one thing I'm supposed to do, maybe much like yourself. <laughs> and it was like, oh, you know, I could not be, you know, maybe um, uh, in the search for um, bright livelihood or or some meaning, meaningful work, and it it may just turn out to be in our everyday actions. And
1: thank you. Yes, and that's not to make it mundane or to reduce its importance, but to actually see that as these opportunities come into our path, that we can choose what's going to help us awaken, mm-hmm. and using that as the pole star, mm-hmm. and knowing then that even some of the most undesirable circumstances can be the most beneficial so it's a wonderful guide. And I also later really, when I look back, I see how I was then, uh, what I was searching for. I mean, I, I don't want to be too harsh on myself because I think that's a, pit, that's a serious pitfall that we can, we can get caught in. But it was kind of self centered. You know, what am I? <laughs> but instead to really recognize that this this awakening is impersonal and that's what we all have as our opportunity this is a benefit to all beings and we're not separate so when i think about well how does this practice that's described in this sutta impact Influence, benefit the world. We're not separate. Our thoughts impact the world. Our actions, our speech, it has an influence on others. The more we can cleanse the stains out of the cloth of the mind, I think the more influence it has because it's clear
2: when you were talking about anger so I was thinking in my own life I'm a nurse at the county hospital so we deal with um, I'm in the emergency room so we deal with you know uh, rape victims and the perpetrators of rape Mm -hmm. and uh, child molestation and child abuse and, and what you were saying about you're almost encouraged or looked on very oddly if you don't allow the anger about that to be wasted by hating the perpetrators you know what i mean you're, you're almost encouraged to think of them as garbage or
1: yeah
2: <laughs> creeps yeah. if you don't if you didn't you kind of would be viewed with some suspicion almost you know what mm-hmm, i mean mm-hmm. And that's a way with, of how the I mean you could you need to take the anger and focus it on the injustice itself and and the the victims or whatever. But you can get carried away with it the other way. And you could end up doing nothing but throwing rocks at at the misbehaviors. <laughs> Is that really improving the world?
1: Uh, and, no, I mean every spiritual tradition I know of says that Hatred does not end hatred. Only love can do that. And so, just to really try to be clear, this kind of thinking of we should hate the person who's doing something wrong adds to the problem. And then we have this anger because we're focused on disapproving of or hating or maligning the person who's done this hurtful thing what we want to do is recognize that that anger is a defilement in us. That's something that causes our minds to be soiled and stained. It causes problems. It's not a good thing. When it arises, we can contain it and we can use that energy skillfully. That's the best we can do. But that it's not the goal to keep perpetuating this feeling and bringing up this energy the goal is to be free from that and what happens when we're really free from that is that we can love we can recognize okay this person made a mistake it's a very very sad mistake But the compassion that we can have for everybody involved is a healing salve. I mean, you're a healer, and the people you work with are healers. And to be able to be very clear about what is wholesome and what is unwholesome, what is just and what is unjust, is imperative. It's not like you're condoning anything. That's harmful or wrong. But at the same time, when we condemn someone, we act as though we can shove them out of society, it doesn't work. And one of the things I love about the Buddha Dhamma and the, and the Dhamma Vinaya is that it's all about rehabilitation. I have this belief that there is always a path of spiritual recovery no matter what we've done. And in the monastic rules, it's set up so that there is this path of spiritual recovery that you can take. You know, for minor offenses, you can confess it. You can clear the slate. For major offenses, you have to go through more <laughs> because it takes more. And so I feel like what, what we can keep our eyes on, what we could keep our focus on when there's this very grievous action is what's the path of spiritual recovery? What does that person need to do in order to come out of the pit they just dug themselves into? And by having, even having that belief, understanding, let's say, of how things work, even having that vision is a source of help and support. So, you know, it's, it's like we can look at the behaviors, the very unwholesome actions, we can see why the Buddha talks about unhappy states, realms of deprivation, given the kinds of things human beings do to each other and to other beings. But if we hold that understanding that there's always a path of spiritual recovery, and then the work is finding it, figuring out what that work is, and giving uh, the support for, for doing it. It's ten after nine, so...
2: I just wanted to say there's an example in the in the uh, canon about Aguli a Mala.
1: Yes, he's the greatest, isn't he? Serial killer who who wakes up and changes course, <laughs> completely changes course. And uh, one time, Ajahn Suchito, who was the abbot at Chitter's Monastery in England, where I was living at the time, said, Anguli Mala must have had a great heart, because your heart would have to be so vast to hold all of that." And it helped me think about how we can recover from the things we've done, instead of beating ourselves up over and over again, to expand our hearts, to hold all of that in it.